and Pastor Kirk and I and our wives and uh, in Austin, Texas, the great nation of Texas. And uh, it was hot, let me tell you, 100 degrees every day. And uh, but thankfully, if you stayed in the shade, it was okay. And I had some good barbecue, but more importantly, I had some good teaching. And uh, you need to know, I just want to bring a report back for you. The, the fellowship we're a part of, the denomination or association, whatever you want to call it, the Evangelical Free Church of America, is solid. Um, uh, such a high commitment to biblical authority, such a high commitment to the truth of the gospel, a high commitment to missions and to diversity within the church. Uh, the, this idea that, that to be a church that, uh, as a group, all EFCA churches, committed to multiplying transformational churches among all people. And uh, that's our hope, and uh, we're part of all people, as is everywhere else around the world. And uh, just, we're going to be promoting our association with the Free Church more and more. And uh, you need to know you're part of a good tribe, and uh, we are, and it's exciting. Yeah, yeah? All right. Well, hey, with that, uh, we are in the book of James this morning. And I tried to think of a funny intro, and I just couldn't. So we're going to dive right into the text. Does that work? How's that for my funny intro? I don't have a good one. But today we're going to do something that uh, we've done before and that usually gets met with um, people shutting down, people getting upset with me, um, maybe not outwardly, but inwardly. And sometimes it comes out outwardly, but uh, we're following the book of James. And when we get to chapter five, he does something uh, that tends to punch people in the gut and gets them upset at the, at the preacher. Do you know what it is? He takes your wallet And he puts it together with this book. (laughs) And he says, uh, how does this book affect how you you, uh, control and what you do with your wallet? Now, uh, Jesus told us, and we're going to look at some of his words this morning. This is his little brother, James, who's writing. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, James was actually Jesus' half-brother. I don't know if you know that or not. Um, But but one of the things uh, Jesus says, he says that where your treasure is... There your heart is also. And so the reason people get, oh, I don't want to talk about money. I don't want to hear about money. We did a whole series on giving. Some of you have already shut down, sadly. It's true. It's true. But do you know why? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And so when we talk about treasure, it's painful because we're talking about your heart. And it's a big mirror that gets held up. And I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of times when I look in the mirror, I don't like what I see. Because it's ugly. And there's sin there. Uh, Yet that's what God's word is, right? That's what we sang. The word of God, faithful and true. His promises will not fail us. But listen, if we're going to do this, um, I need you to do something this morning. I need you to think biblically with me, okay? So not economically, Not socially, not politically, but biblically. Yeah, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And so uh, in the Bible, uh, God lays out basically four categories of people as it relates to wealth and riches. A lot of times we only think of two. We think rich and poor, don't we? We think rich and poor. But really, you know what the Bible does? The Bible lays out four different groups. And I've I've talked about these before, but it's important uh, to lay them out as some groundwork so that we think biblically when we see what James is writing here in chapter 5. The first category of people are the godly poor. Sometimes I'll say the righteous poor. The godly poor, um, 
These are people who are godly, but they don't have much. This would be Jesus' family. His family was incredibly poor. This would be Jesus. He was poor. This would be a woman named Ruth in the Old Testament. She was godly and poor. This would include, uh, in the book of James even, widows and orphans. It would include uh, the orphans we support in India and the people we're going to be going to minister to in November in India. In, in our day, in northern Indiana, it might be a single mom who's working really hard, who's godly and doing everything she can to, to supply for her kids and provide for them. And she's godly, but she doesn't have much. That's the godly poor. That's the first category. There's another category, a second category that, that the Bible lays out are the godly rich. The godly rich. Now, these are people who love the Lord and have a lot of cash. They love Jesus and their wallet's fat. Nothing wrong with that. But that's who they are. They're the godly rich. This would be uh, people like, in the Bible, people like Abraham. Abraham was off the charts wealthy. Uh, Job would be another one. In Job, just in the first chapter, it talks about all his wealth. The first eight verses talk about all his wealth. And then God at the end says to Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? There's, there's no one like him who's so godly. In, in verse 8, I believe. Uh, this would be certain godly kings like Josiah, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Do you know who he was? He was a guy who was part of the, the Pharisees, a part of the Sanhedrin, but a follower of Jesus and incredibly wealthy. In fact, he was the one who provided the tomb. It was his tomb that he provided for Jesus to be buried in. So the godly poor, the godly rich, and the New Testament, this would also include a gal named Lydia, funded a lot of ministry in the book of Acts. And then there's a third category the Bible lays out. And uh, it's the ungodly poor, or the unrighteous poor, or the wicked poor. I've used all those terms interchangeably at different times talking about this. But the third category the Bible lays out is the ungodly poor. You know, Proverbs talks a lot about these types of people. These are people who uh, won't work. They're poor, and they blame everybody else, and they themselves won't work. They're ungodly. They're not living in a godly way. Uh, these are people who, uh, they drink and gamble every opportunity and, and waste their wealth away. They're like, Josh, that's so judgmental. It's, it's true. There are people like that. I'm not saying you're like that. I'm saying there are people like that. And they are ungodly and poor. And because of addictions, because of gambling, because of compulsions, because of just an absolute unwillingness to work, because of incredible selfishness, they're poor. And they're ungodly. And then there's a fourth category. You can guess where we're going, right? You can fill it in probably already. The ungodly rich. The ungodly rich. The ungodly rich are found throughout the Bible. Uh, like Herod. All the Herods. The Pharaohs. Um, uh, these are some of the godless political leaders. This would include a guy we're going to look at this morning called the rich young ruler. Ungodly rich. These are people who have a lot of money, a lot of fame, a lot of power... But the way they get it and what they do with it is very ungodly. Now, in our culture, especially in the political climate today, um, there can be this tendency to, to break this down into only two categories. And even when we interpret scripture, if we're not careful, we can break this into two categories, the rich and the poor. And the rich are evil and wicked and taking advantage of everybody. And the poor are godly and good and right. But God says, no, there's actually four categories. There's godly poor, godly rich, ungodly poor, ungodly rich. Do you see that? 
And uh, it's, it's important to understand these four categories. This is thinking biblically as we get into the text this morning. Um, the question, though, that you need to ask yourself today is which category are you in? What category do you fit in? Are you godly or ungodly? Are you rich or are you poor? Um, but before you put yourself into the godly poor category, uh, you, you, if we look at, his, at it historically, our standard of living, yours and mine, is incredibly opulent. Did you know that? Would you agree? I mean... Think about it for a second. If you transported the people James is writing to into the New Testament, into your living room. So, so take some of the people James is writing to, persecuted Christians in the first century, and I don't know, like Star Trek, and then they show up in your living room. There they are. Like, oh, wow, hi, how are you? Good, I'm glad, I'm good, how are you? Maybe they come into the kitchen. What's this? This big box. What is that thing? Oh, that's a refrigerator. A refrigerator, what does that do? Oh, it keeps our food cold. Food? You have food? Wow, that's amazing. What about, uh, what about these big, uh, uh, big cases on the wall? What's behind them? Oh, that's our cupboard. That's, what, what, do you, what do you do with those? That's where we keep the other food. Uh, the other food? Wow, that's amazing. Well, where, where did you get all this food? Uh, well, we, we went to the store. And the store has all kinds of food that you can buy. That's incredible. That's unbelievable. But like, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty awesome. In fact, you could, you could probably get so much that you couldn't even fit it all into these cupboards or into the fridge. And if it goes bad in the fridge, throw it out, go back next week, get some more. Can you imagine what would, what would be going through these people's minds? Their mind would be blown. So before you put yourself in the ungodly poor, keep thinking with me. They look around the living room, they go, and what's that, what's that box over there? Oh, that's, uh, that's endless entertainment, 24-7, all different languages. That's amazing. Wow. Wow. And you walk around, and I notice your, your house has a lot of different rooms in it. Our house only has one room. You know, what, what's this room? Oh, that's the bathroom. The bathroom. What do you do in the bathroom? Oh, well, uh, it's a magical place where you uh, get rid of stuff and it goes away forever from your house. That's incredible. And what's this thing? What if you turn it? Oh, that's, that's, that's water? You have water in your house. You can't drink it, though, can you? Yeah, you can drink it. It's amazing. You see where I'm going? Uh, or, or what about the little little square rectangle in your pocket? What's that thing that lights up? Well, that's a phone. A phone, really. I can get any information I want 24-7. I can call anyone I know and talk to them. I can even uh, get them on video and talk to them face-to-face anywhere in the world at any time of day, no matter what's going on, just in the palm of my hand. Wow. I have to get on a camel and take a five-day journey to see my mom. <laughs> that's incredible. Do you see that? We live in a way that kings and queens in previous days only dreamt about. So now, now I understand that these categories, they are relative, though, too, to cultures, right? So historically, globally, you and I are, are in the rich category. You're in the bottom row there. Uh, you're either godly or ungodly. Now, in our own culture, yeah, maybe you do fit into the poorer category. And that's okay, I'm not, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying, think biblically with me here, though. And, and, and as you think about what category you fit into. 
So with, with that whole intro, you need to know if you are godly and poor, uh, the text this morning has some great encouragement for you today. If you are, um, because the text actually today in James chapter 5, we're going to get there in just a minute, only actually covers categories 1 and 4. It covers the, the ungodly poor, or the godly poor and the ungodly rich. It really doesn't touch on the other, on categories 2 and 3. Um, but if you're in category 1, then there's great encouragement for you. If, if you are, are not godly, but you're ungodly poor, the text doesn't immediately address you, but... Uh, there's a cross-section of it that does the ungodly piece, and, and there's an opportunity for you to repent and to, have, uh, uh, to, to be godly and to turn to Jesus. If you're rich and godly, good, I'm glad, um, but uh, there's still opportunity for you here to learn and to be more like Jesus. And if you're ungodly and rich this morning, buckle up, buckle up, because it's coming. All right? Now, let me pray, and then we're going to dive into the text. Let me pray. Uh, Father, thanks for Jesus, uh, who, uh, Lord, you think about it, you own everything. You, Jesus, were incredibly rich, incredibly wealthy, uh, the definition of wealth. And yet you gave up everything to come as a missionary to our culture and our time to put on flesh and to live like us, to live the life that we can't live. And uh, Jesus, you told us that where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. And you uh, teach us in many places throughout the Bible, again here through your younger brother James, um, of how we ought to handle our wealth and how uh, that, that, that applies in our life, how your word applies to our wallet. Holy Spirit, I pray that um, I have a lot to learn here. I, I pray you would teach me even as I teach. Um, you've convicted me a lot this week. I pray you'd continue to do that. I pray, uh, I pray too, Holy Spirit, that you would be the one to convict hearts today, that you would draw back the attention of those who have maybe already checked out because we're talking about money again, and um, because you're talking about money again, and you might uh, work in their lives. For all of us, help us to be like Jesus. I pray against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. Uh, would you instead um, bind him and, and change us today? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in James chapter 5. So if you've got your Bible, why don't you turn there with me. James chapter 5. And uh, we're going to start right away in verse 1 of James. Chapter 5, my fat fingers, I can't get the page open. Here we go. Here's what he writes. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. And he does not resist you. We're going to come back through and unpack this in a moment. Um, but here's the big idea of the text this morning, or at least of the message and drawn out of the text, um, that you need to know as we head into this. And here's the idea, and it comes out of that whole biblical uh, grid matrix of godly rich, godly poor, ungodly rich, ungodly poor. 
God does not care about your net worth. Let me say it again. God does not care about your net worth. He doesn't care if you're rich. That's a good thing. He doesn't care if you're poor. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You know what he cares about? He cares about your heart. He doesn't care about your net worth. But, and just to, to prove it, I mean, in, I told you in Job, Job chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 8, it talks about everything that Job had. He had a huge family. He had unbelievable wealth and ease of life. And the Lord said about him to Satan in verse 8, he says, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. He's blameless and upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. And he was incredibly rich. But there are also people who are incredibly poor, like the widow with two mites, right? And uh, she gives everything she has. And Jesus says, no, what she gave was actually more than the rich person. Her heart was in the right place. God doesn't care about your net worth. He doesn't. He cares about you, but he doesn't care about your net worth. You know what he cares about as it relates to your wealth? He cares uh, about how you attain it. He does care about how you attain it. Because to attain it in an ungodly way it doesn't make you godly and rich. It makes you ungodly and rich. Have you attained it in a, in a right way? And you can do that even when you're poor. You can try to attain wealth in an ungodly way. God cares about how you attain your wealth. Uh, for instance, in Titus, Paul says that an overseer, in other words, a pastor or an elder or a deacon, uh, God's steward, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain or greedy. Uh, Proverbs 19 says, what's desired in a man is steadfast love and a poor man is better than a liar. A liar that would say, oh, I, you know, I got all my wealth and I got it right. No, maybe, did you? Uh, Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy in, in chapter six, verse nine Uh, In his first letter to Timothy, he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Notice, Paul doesn't say those who are rich, does he? He says those who desire to be rich. See, you can be rich and desire more and more and more and more and more and never have enough. You can be poor and desire more and more and more and more and more and never get enough. It's, It's not being rich. It's not your net worth. It's how you attain it. It's the desire of your heart. This isn't me. This is God's word. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root, not the root, a, a, singular, one of many roots of all kinds of evil. Not all evil, but all kinds. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Proverbs tells us, verse, chapter 10, verse 22, that the blessing of the Lord makes rich. And, and when the Lord makes you rich, he adds no sorrow with it. There's no guilt in it. It's, it's what's incredible, too. We're going to see that. Here's the next piece. You know, God, God doesn't care about your net worth, but he cares about how you attain it. And he cares about what you do with it. So have you ever noticed uh, there are some incredibly godly, wealthy people? And they're also incredibly generous. And their wealth keeps growing. Their wealth keeps growing. And if you talk to them, it's like, well, I, I, I can't outgive God. And they, because they don't have sticky fingers, every time wealth comes into them and they give more and more away, it's like, well, here, here's some more. I'm going to entrust it with you because you're godly and I trust what you're going to do with it. 
Some of you have experienced that, praise the Lord. That's a great thing. But, but the key is, first, not that they're rich, but first, that they're godly. And the, the, the thing that reveals that is what you do with your wealth. That's what God cares about. And we're going to look at this passage in a moment. Jesus says in Mark, Matthew chapter 6, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, uh, but treasures in heaven. So in my long intro this morning, pointing those things out, now let's just take this passage and unpack it verse by verse, and then we'll come back with some application. So first, look at verse 1 with me. James says, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, I I told you, one of the keys in the book of James is whenever he says, um, he gives a command and he accompanies it with my brothers. That's a clue that he's switching gears. Well, in this case, he doesn't say my brothers, he just gives a command. So who is he talking to? He doesn't say, come now, my brothers, my rich brothers. He says, come now, you rich. Who is he talking to? Who are these rich people? Did you notice what he tells them to do? This is our clue. He tells them, weep and howl. Your translation might even say, weep and and wail. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. See, every commentator I've read, every pastor I've read, everything I've seen this week in studying this, and even leading up to this week, uh, points to the fact that they believe James, and I believe it too, that James is addressing unbelievers here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. That in their church, there are unbelieving people who are going to hear this letter. James is making that assumption. How do we make that assumption? Well, those words, there's a a lot of ways we can. But first off, those words, weep and howl. Do you know, those words show up all the time together. Weep and wail in the Old Testament. And every time they show up together, guess who they're addressing? People who are about to spend eternity in hell, who haven't trusted the Lord. James is using that. It's never applied to God's people or to believers, this phrase. It's, it's applied to unbelievers. And James, what Bible did James have? Do you remember? James was the very first book of the New Testament ever written. So how much of the New Testament did he have? Zippo, until his pen hit paper. He had the Old Testament. So he's using the same metaphor out of the Old Testament, I believe, to address people in the same way the Old Testament did. Unbelievers weep and wail. And why should they weep and wail? For the miseries, plural, that are coming upon them. In other words, uh, there's great misery waiting for you if you haven't trusted Jesus. If you haven't trusted Jesus Christ, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You're like, that's really harsh, Josh. That's kind of mean. Well, it's also true. <laughs> Apart from Jesus, man, you have no hope. You've got no hope. And I wouldn't be a good pastor. I wouldn't be uh, somebody who could stand up and say, you are loved, if I didn't tell you that truth. You need to repent. You need to turn to Jesus Christ. And James is, is writing here in this section to people he believes are going to hear his words, who are unbelievers, who are ungodly and rich ungodly and rich. Now this can open up a can of worms for some saying, well, hold on, why were there unbelievers in the church? I thought, well, 
Same reason there are today. They, they're coming to hear the, hear the word, to hear the truth, to see what's going on. Some people you can spend, and, and I fear this. I hope it's not true, but I say it often because if anything, I, I want to scare you to examine your own heart. Don't assume that because you come to church your entire life that you're going to heaven. Don't assume it. Have you repented of your sin? Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't, you're not a Christian for sitting in a pew. Just like you're not a chalupa for sitting at Taco Bell. Right? You heard me say that kind of jokingly. You look like a chalupa. You smell like a chalupa. You eat enough chalupas. You're not a chalupa. You come to church long enough, you you act like a Christian, you got the right sayings down, you sing the right songs, you can even uh, quote some scripture. But what about your heart? Have you repented? Don't deceive yourself. Examine your heart. Well, uh, it's important too then, even as I teach and... uh, that if you are an unbeliever and you're here with us, we love you. We're glad you're here. I'm going to do my best to explain God's word in a way that you can understand it, even if you've never picked up God's word, because I believe that has the power to change you. Amen? Well, here's what James says. He says, come now, you rich, weep and wail, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Uh, you can disagree with me whether he's talking about unbelievers or not, but I, I'm pretty confident that he is. And here's what he says about their riches. He says, uh, for your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. See, you've laid up treasure in the last days. Um, Your riches, your garments, your gold and silver... There were, there were three areas of wealth in this day common. Uh, uh, some commentators believe that riches here is referring actually to grain. And so, yeah, it could rot and go away. I mean, that was part of the way you bartered is with food. Uh, then your garments. Uh, the rich had, had, had nice clothing. Most people had uh, a couple pieces of clothing, if that. Maybe one piece, singular. And so all of their clothing, they've got so much, they don't know what to wear today. That doesn't sound like any of us, does it? I'm guilty of that. Uh, and then you got so much, it's, it's being eaten up by moths. And your gold. Now, some people get all bent out of shape here because they look, read it and they go, hmm, gold and silver doesn't corrode. It doesn't, it doesn't rot. Well, yeah, but it does tarnish. And the idea here, James isn't trying to be a scientist here. He's trying to go after your heart. And he's saying, um, all of your wealth is, is just, it's come to nothing. It's like the chicken we had to throw away out of the fridge this week because you opened the fridge and, whew, it's nasty. All your wealth has, has rotted, has corroded, has gone away. Um, see, you, you've, you've heard the story, right? I mean, you, you can't take it with you. Do you know that? See, where is your treasure? You can't take it with you. You know, the the old joke, I've never seen a U-Hawk following a hearse. Have you? Uh Uh-uh. Unless it's a multiple funeral or something. I don't understand how that would work. You can't take it with you. Everything you have, you can't take it with you. But guess what? You know what the good news is? 
This is where I ask, where is your treasure? Because you need to examine your heart. Where does your heart point? Uh, That'll point you to your treasure. Uh, You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Did you know that? You ever, you ever had to make a big move and you pack up all your things and you send it off ahead of you with the mover? Some people have done that, not many of us, but some have. And then it's going to be there when you get there, right? You know, you can do that with your riches, with your wealth. You can't take any of it with you, but you can send it ahead. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6. Here's what he says. He he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth rust and destroy, where thieves break in and steal. James kind of sounds like his big brother here, doesn't he? Where he talks about uh, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth eaten, uh, your your gold and silver is corroded. Jesus said that. He said, where moth rust and destroy, don't lay up for yourself treasures here, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And then right after that is where he says, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. See, you can't take it with you. But if you invest in things that are eternal, if you spend your money in a godly way, now listen, that doesn't ever mean you don't spend stuff on yourself. That doesn't mean you don't enjoy your wealth. Paul tells Timothy that God has given us all things to enjoy. It's yours to enjoy. But make sure Jesus is in the center of it. And if he's in the center, you're investing it and you can send your wealth on ahead and there'll be riches waiting for you in heaven. Otherwise, there could be a rude awakening waiting for you after you breathe your last breath. When not only is everything gone, but maybe your hope was in your riches and not even in Jesus Christ. Let's keep reading in the text. Let's go back um, verse 4. James says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. See, these, these uh, ungodly rich that he's addressing, um, they, they own a lot of land. They're taking advantage of the Christians who have come to their area, have been dispersed from Jerusalem. Uh, the wages of the laborers, those people who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. See, if in that day... Uh, MasterCard didn't exist. Did you know that? Like that's a modern invention. Credit is a modern invention. In those days, you know what would happen is you would go work in the field and at the end of the day, what would you collect? Your wages, your pay. You'd get your pay at the end of the day. That's what, Do you remember Jesus tells a parable and some of them get really riled up about it? And, and he, said, he talks about the laborers who go into the field. And one goes in and he works all day. One goes in at, at noon and he works the rest of the day. One goes in in the afternoon and he works the rest of the day. Something like, like that. And at the end of the day, they all get equal pay. They all get pay for the whole day's wages. Well, they understood that parable because that was the method by which you were paid in those days. You went and worked for the day. And at the end of the day, you got your check. Well, you didn't get a check. You got your wage, Right. And so he's saying, so if you didn't get your wage at the end of the day, guess what you might not do tomorrow? Eat. You might not eat. And neither would your family. See, he says, these wages that are still in your bank account that should be in their hands are crying out against you. It, it kind of echoes Genesis chapter uh, three, and, or chapter four, excuse me, after Cain kills Abel. And God says, oh, where's your brother? He's like, I don't know. He's like, yeah, well, his blood is crying out against you from the ground. See, God cares about what you do with your wealth, doesn't he? 
Look what else it says. And it says, the cries of the harvesters, James writes, have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Lord of heaven's armies. The one who commands the armies, the one who's in control, hears the cry of the least of these. That's great encouragement, isn't it? He hears us. And, and these, these wealthy people who believed that, who were ungodly and who believed that they were getting away with all these things didn't realize God knew the whole time and he wasn't going to let them get away with anything. He goes on to condemn them. He says that you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The idea here is you, you've just, you're like, you're like the farmer who fattens up his calf so that he can kill it and have a big feast. In your sinfulness, you've just fattened yourself up for the day that you're going to be slaughtered. You've been heaping up evidence against you that God will use in the day of judgment that's on you. That's what he's saying. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person by them withholding wages. They are actually murdering people. And he doesn't resist you. He had no way to resist them. In that day, unless you were wealthy, unless you were a landowner, you couldn't vote. You couldn't go to court. So these people had no legal recourse. They just had to take it. And these ungodly people who were also rich took advantage of them. And they couldn't resist them. So these last uh, three verses really begs the question. I, I told you God doesn't care about your net worth. He cares about how you attain it and what you do with it. What do you do with yours? Because God is not against you having riches, but he's against you, miss, and me. Make sure you know I'm talking to me too, okay? He's against you and I misusing our riches. He's against us misusing them. He's not against you having them. In fact, it's, it, it can be a good thing for you to, um, and you, have to do, you have to guard your heart to do it in a godly way. And we don't have time to talk about all that today. But to, to desire, or desire is the wrong word, but to, uh, to want to move forward in life, to, to create a better life for your family, a better legacy behind you. The Bible actually says that's a good thing, to leave an inheritance to your children's children. That's a noble and righteous thing, right? The, the issue, though, is where's your heart? Is Jesus in the center of that endeavor or are you? God's not against you having riches. He's against you misusing your riches. And, and a key example of this, if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. We're going to go back to, uh, to James' older brother, to some of his words in the book of Luke. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. If you turn back a few pages, you'll find it. Matthew, Mark, Luke. I keep going too far. Luke, John. Chapter 12, starting in verse 13. You maybe heard this parable. It's, uh, um, in my Bible, on the top, there's a heading there that somebody put in. It says, the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd came to him. They came to Jesus, and they said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> but Jesus said to him, Man, who, who made you a judge, or who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And then he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Um, Jesus is kind of saying, I don't, I don't care how much you have. I care what you do with it and where your heart is. And then he told them a parable. He said, uh, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. 
And he said, he thought for a while and he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down one of my barns and I'll build larger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You got, you got the story so far? Farmer, and he's farming, and it's such a bountiful year. He's like, I don't know what to do with everything I've got. God's been so good to me. And his first thought isn't, maybe I should give it away. Maybe I should uh, give it to the church. Maybe I should give it to somebody in need. Uh, maybe I should invest it and make more so I can give even more in the future. That's not his first thought. What's his first thought? Himself. What am I going to do with it for me? I know. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. I'll build bigger ones so that I have more in the future, and so that I can sit back, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, and sail into retirement. That's what he says, right? Are you with me? But look what God says back to him: "Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be then?" So is the one who lays up for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the one who lays up for himself and is not rich toward God. Uh, As we close, I want to lay out three ways based on the text here. And there's there's more, I think, but there's three we see here in James chapter 5. That we can misuse our wealth. Because God isn't against you having wealth. He's against you misusing it. And uh, really behind this whole conflict, uh, before we even get to those three ways, we'll move through them really fast. Uh, but behind this whole thing are really two, two ideologies or mindsets as it relates to your stuff. One is ownership and the other one is stewardship. Do you see things in your life in terms of ownership or in terms of stewardship? See, because if you don't even get this, then whatever application I give you, you're going to be like, ah, I don't know, I don't know. You've got to get to the heart of it, man, right? You've got to get down deep. Where, where is your heart? Here's what ownership believes. And kind of their, this is the underlying commitments of ownership, of an ideology of ownership. You think to yourself, number one, I don't belong to the Lord. If there is a God, he certainly doesn't own me like a possession. He's not in charge. He's not in control. Maybe if I want him to come and serve me, maybe that's a possibility, but certainly not rule over me. And your life is characterized by language like, nah, Lord, I'm just not interested in that. That doesn't line up with my thinking. That, you, I, you may want to do that, but I don't want to do that. It's ownership. Uh, I don't belong to the Lord. And then that carries over into number two, if you have this mindset of ownership. That, and, and by the way, nothing I have belongs to the Lord. <laughs> nothing I own belongs to the Lord. I don't belong to the Lord, right? So nothing I have does either. What I drive, where I live, what I do, that, that doesn't belong to God. That belongs to me. I'm mine. I'm the ruler and authority and responsible party in my life. It's all mine. That's not his. It's mine. I'm not his. So I I don't belong to the Lord. Nothing I have belongs to the Lord. And by the way, number three, I deserve everything I've worked for. Everything that's in my barn. And when I tear it down and build a bigger one, everything that's going to go in that barn, guess whose it is? It's mine and I've worked hard for it. And don't you dare tell me what I should do with it. That's the mindset of ownership. 
that it's all mine. I don't belong to the Lord. Nothing I have belongs to him. Everything I have, I deserve. Whatever the case is, whether I took it, I stole it, even if I made it in the right way, it doesn't matter. It's survival of the fittest, man. That's just the way it works. Whatever I've got is mine. I deserve it. And just back off. That's an ownership mentality. And then finally, really what it is, is number four, I only answer to myself. I'm not going to answer to God for how I use my stuff. I'm not going to give an account. I'm not going to have a day of judgment where I stand behind uh, before uh, some God and tell him what I did with my life and my stuff. That's not the way it is. I give an account to me. I'm the general manager. I'm the CEO of my life. Back off. That's a mindset of ownership. And that's why Jesus says where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And that's why sometimes people get really bent out of shape when we talk about money. Because they they hear me saying that and they're threatened because they have this ideology of ownership. The Bible says that's ungodly. It's completely ungodly whether you're rich or poor or somewhere in the middle. It's ungodly to have that ownership mindset. Here's what the Bible teaches. A mindset of stewardship. Uh, Biblically, it's not about ownership, but about stewardship. And uh, there's some uh, underlying principles here as well. Here's the first one of a stewardship mindset. I belong to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. Uh, Romans 1.6, you might jot this down. And you are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Did you know that? When you become a Christian, you are no longer yours. Your life belongs to Jesus Christ. You're like, I don't know if I'd have signed up for it if I'd have known that, because I'm kind of selfish. But that's true. In fact, for, you might jot this verse down too, 1 Corinthians six 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. When you become a Christian, you surrender. You give up legal rights to everything about you. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus Christ. Stewardship principle number two then. If you're going to get this idea of stewardship into your heart, uh, everything then that I have belongs to him. Everything I have belongs to God. It's not ownership, it's stewardship. Do you know what a steward is? A steward is a manager who works on the authority of someone else to care for all of their stuff. That's a steward. And so everything I have belongs to him. Uh, You might look at the book of Haggai, which we did earlier this year. Uh, God says, it's all mine. The gold is mine. The silver is mine. Everything is mine. Now, graciously, he gives it to you and to me to use. The shirt I have on is the Lord's. The air I breathe is the Lord's. The food I'll have for lunch is the Lord's. This building is the Lord's. Your house, your car, your bank account, everything you have, your children, they're not yours. They're the Lord's. He owns it all. A stewardship mindset understands this truth. I don't belong to me. Everything I have belongs to him. Nothing belongs to me. And then number three, everything I do have then is a gift. In in fact, in Corinthians, Paul goes on to say, he says, don't you understand that everything you have is from Jesus Christ? 
meaning all of your righteousness, meaning all of your wealth, meaning everything you have is a gift. That's stewardship. Do you recognize that? Or do you go, no, I earned it. I earned it. I worked hard and it's mine. You may have worked hard and that's great, but in the end of the day, it's a gift from God. Because I know a lot of people who work incredibly hard and have nothing. It's a gift from the Lord. Everything I have is a gift, including my salvation. Listen, this is life-changing. If you can understand this mindset. And then finally, uh, I'm a steward of the Lord. If I belong to the Lord, if everything I have belongs to him, if everything I have is a gift from him, uh, then I'm a steward of him. It's, it's, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Lord, you, you gave me a new house. What do you want me to do with my house? How do you want me to use it for your glory, for others' good, and for my joy? Lord, my bank account, everything in it is yours. What, what do you want me to do with it? I know I should, I should give, I should pay my bills, but what about what's left over? What do you want me to do? Do you want me to save it? Do you want me to spend it on me? Or do you want me to use it for something else and someone else? Are you a steward of everything that God has given you? That's someone who's in the godly category of godly poor or godly rich. They have a stewardship mindset. So with that in mind, really quickly, and then we're going to wrap up these three points from James chapter 5. Here's three ways, just in James 5, we can misuse our wealth. We can be like the people he's writing to, and number one, we can hoard it. We can hoard our riches. I put, this is also known as being cheap. (laughs) Isn't it? I'm not going to spend money on that. Nope, nope, nope. I'm going to save it. I'm going to hoard it. I'm going to keep it for me because that's... See, it reveals your heart. If I hoard it, then I say, that's what brings me joy. That's what brings me pleasure. That's what brings me security is my money and my stuff or my... You can hoard a lot of things besides money. My food, uh, my house, um, my children. I can hoard a lot of stuff, can't I? And sometimes when I hoard it to the point that I just... I don't even want to spend any... I can be cheap. Like, no, I'm frugal. No, you're hoarding your stuff. <laughs> There's a difference between being right, uh, being a good steward financially and managing your money well and just being cheap. God's given it to you to enjoy and to use for others' good. Not to hoard. You're to hold on to him, not your stuff. It's not yours to begin with. That We see that in, in verse 3, right? Or verse 4, excuse me. They were hoarding their wealth. They weren't giving it away. Uh, You can cheat others, which they also did in verses 4 and 5. See, instead of hoarding, I should be generous. Uh, But you can also cheat others. Their wages were crying out. Their harvesters were crying out. Um, When I cheat others, you're like, I don't cheat anybody. Yeah, but what about your blessings? Are you using them? Uh, God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless others. That's why he gives us things. I'm blessing you to be a blessing to others. When I don't do that, I'm cheating them. I'm robbing them of God's blessing through me. I've got sticky fingers. You're not blessing others. You're harming them with your selfishness. Sometimes your own selfishness can rob someone else of being able to step out in faith and trust the Lord. Instead of being, uh, instead of cheating others and being selfish, be just. Just do what's right. Do what's right. See, these, uh, these rich people in chapter 5, they were cheating others. And then we're going to see here uh, in verse 5, they were living lives of self-indulgence. It wasn't like they didn't have the money to pay him. 
And uh, then they took that money and they used it for themselves. See, that's the third way you can misuse it. You can just live in self-indulgence. And to a person in this room, I think if we're honest, we've all been here. Even if you say, I don't hoard stuff, I don't cheat people. But you know what? We've all been indulgent, including the guy talking. Instead, I should be selfless, not selfish. We should enjoy the gift, yes. But we should recognize it's from a giver. We should enjoy him more. And we should give of our things and of our talent and our treasure and our time. So that we're not at the center, but Jesus is. Recognizing every good and perfect gift comes from above. A guy wrote that. What was his name? James. Oh, same guy who wrote this. Everything is his. And here's the key, loved ones. Keep Jesus in the center. See, I don't know if James uh, recognized this or not, but there's definitely something there that I see, and it reminds me of, as I read verse 6, it reminds me of Jesus. He says, you condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he did not resist you. Jesus was incredibly wealthy, and in our selfishness, we condemned him and murdered him on the cross. And he didn't resist so that he could give us his wealth of righteousness and of grace. But the key is then keep Jesus in the center of all this. Go read Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to read a poem to you as the worship team comes forward and as we close. And then we're going to take our offering and sing. But I have the, the, the primary stanza from this poem written on the whiteboard right by my desk. I heard it a number of years ago. And I want you just to put, put down whatever you've got. The worship team will come up and just, uh, just listen to this. This is a, a poem by a guy named uh, C.T. Studd, Charles Thomas Studd. And by the way, he was a stud in terms of cricket. He was a stud cricket player. He was world-renowned. Um, if you look into his life, he, he probably he gave up a ton. He was part of a group called the Cambridge Seven who left Cambridge Business School to go serve in China. And then he started an inland mission in Africa. Now, the, the mar on his life is he didn't treat his wife real well, which that's sad. But uh, this poem is powerful. And I shouldn't say that like that's just a side thing, because that's a really horrible thing. Right? All right, but hear these words. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind they would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for, one, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
When this bright world should tempt me sore, when Satan would, would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life, for only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Here's the last stanza. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. For only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let me pray. Father, um, it's true, life is short and we get one. And uh, for some, it's a life of, of wealth. For some, it's a life of poverty. Um, but in any case, Jesus, you offer us great eternal wealth in what you accomplished for us on the cross. And what we do with our stuff on this earth really reveals our heart about and toward you. It's not a financial issue. It's a heart issue. It's not a... Do we have enough? It's a, have I trusted you? Jesus, how we handle our things really reveals our heart toward you. I pray for those, Lord, who uh, have never trusted you. I pray for those who think they've trusted you and have never trusted you. That today, Holy Spirit, you pierce their heart in such a way that they'd recognize the words of your word and even the words of that poem. We only have one life and it will soon be passed. For some that might be today, for some that might be this month, for some this decade, but it will soon be over. And only Jesus, what's done for you will last. Help us remember those words and live by them. Repent and turn to you in Jesus' name. Amen.